0: Welcome to The Value Script. I'm your host, Lonnie Carmichael. Today, we have a super special guest that I'm totally stoked to interview. This is Matt Brown from Freedom Interventions. He is an intervention specialist. He has a mission in life to help as many people and families overcome the stigma of addiction. They have a new podcast you should check out called The Party Wreckers, where they discuss some very poignant things regarding intervention, timing, how to do it, what to do it, when to do it, how to do it correctly so that it doesn't go bad. And welcome to the show, Matt.
1: Thanks, Lonnie. I'm so glad to be here. I, I really appreciate you having me on. I've been listening to your show. Um, you know, of course, you and I go way back. Um, you know, we go back to our childhood together. So it's kind of nice to, to get reconnected and to hear what's going on with you and your podcast and your practice and your life and uh, and to be able to share this moment with you, I appreciate
0: you having me on. Thank you very much. You know, since you mentioned that, I was thinking. Uh, growing up, you were kind of the it guy. You know, um, you were four years. old. Oh, I don't know about that. Older. Come on now. You know, maybe maybe not four years older, but you were older than than I was. And um, no, but you know, from the outside looking in, you were the good-looking guy. You, the girls loved you. You were athletic. You were smart. Everything promising in the world. And so watching that from a distance, um, you know you were somebody that I looked up to as um, a growing and developing young man. And we just recently reconnected and had some surprising similarities in our in our walk and our story. And so i I was really encouraged by the phone call we had. And it was, it was super enlightening, but some of the things that you said from a completely different walk resonated with me so strongly. So what led you on this path, Matt, to become an interventionist and an addiction? Are you an addiction specialist or how how do you define that and, and what do you do?
1: I, ju- I just call myself an, an interventionist. And so what I do is I work with families who have loved ones who need to go into treatment for drug or alcohol addiction. Sometimes there are other behavioral addictions, whether it's gambling or sex or food or, you know, they call them process addictions where it's more behavioral in nature than, than related to a substance. But most of the people, in fact, all of the people that I work with need to get help, but they're not going to choose to get it on their own. And so what I do is I work with families to come up with a strategy to sit down with their loved one and, and a message that will create that moment of hope for them to really make that decision and make that move to, to move forward and take that action of, of getting help. And, and most of the time, like I said, it's them going into a drug and alcohol treatment program somewhere in the country. Um, sometimes the, the, the solution that we're asking them to engage in is a little bit different than that, but of the time, we're looking at some sort of an inpatient treatment program for them to really spend some time dealing with the substance abuse issues, the mental health issues, the issues related to trauma, abuse, grief, loss, all of those things that really get compounded as you're looking at what creates addiction in someone in
0: the first place. You know, that's interesting because I think, well, I don't think, I know I have felt sort of marginalized or maybe stigmatized is the correct word, Um, not wanting to admit to myself that possibly I've been an addict because of the stigma of the word. And in doing so, I feel I didn't recognize the problem soon enough and also closed myself off to helpful solutions. So how do you do that? How do you help them overcome that stigma?
1: There is a stigma, and it's unfortunate because you know, in your line of work, working in the medical profession, whether it's dentistry or or some sort of other medical practice, if someone comes in and they have a medical problem or a dental problem, there's no stigma necessarily around that, like there is with addiction. Somehow, with addiction, it gets conflated with this idea of whether it's character weakness or some some issue with a, a moral issue versus a medical issue. And while I do believe very strongly that addiction is a medical disease with a spiritual solution, and I say spiritual in the sense not not necessarily religious, but I think that it takes more than just giving someone a medication to be able to overcome an addiction. We have to treat them spiritually in terms of the the internal and emotional hurt that they're going through. If those wounds don't get healed, there's going to be a relapse at some point in the future, no matter what course corrections. What we see behaviorally in that moment down the line, there's going to be some sort of behavioral mechanism to try to soothe that pain going forward. And so getting back to the issue of the stigma, most of the time when I'm sitting down with someone, I'm not asking them, all right, let's talk about what kind of drugs you're using. Let's talk about what you're drinking. Let's talk about how much and how often and who with most of that in that moment, when I'm sitting with them and their family and their loved ones, that's not. The the thing that we really want to be talking about. We what I ask them is, you know, if I was intervening on you, I would say, Lonnie, are, are are you happy? Can in this moment, can you really tell me that the life that you have is the one that you want? And if it's not, what are you willing to do to get it? And can you reconcile the fact that maybe what you've been doing, as as much effort and energy that you've been putting into this, is just not working? And that's not because you're not an intelligent person. That's not because you're not. You don't have the desire to make these changes. Nobody wakes up with the life that I had or the life that that the people that I work with have and says, yes, this is exactly what I want. Most of us have promised ourselves to change so many times, but there's this layer of fear that really holds us back. And so I think that really getting someone, whether they're wrestling with their pride, whether they're wrestling with fear, Sometimes they're wrestling with the fact that, well, this idiot Matt Brown has told my family to say things that they really don't mean because they they've never set boundaries with me before. So as soon as I can get him out of the living room, I'll go back to doing what I do, and I'll get my family to go back to doing what they do, and I'll be able to restore the status quo. Sometimes those it's just a matter of really holding those boundaries and helping them understand that we really do mean what we say. As many times as we as we've tried to set boundaries with you in in the past and failed we've now have somebody here to help us set those boundaries and hold those boundaries with you so that we no longer enable this and i think that's the other side of this you know you have the person that you're dealing with who's struggling with the addiction but then you also have the family on the other side where most of the time without even realizing it they've been enabling the addiction to continue for so long even though their intentions are loving they they just don't understand how they've been contributing innocently to to what's been going on Certainly. That was a very long-winded answer to your question. I'm sorry, but I...
0: No, <laughs> oh, it's it comprehensive. One thing you mentioned when we spoke on the phone was that addicted people don't necessarily know what they need. Right? And if they did... That's true. They probably wouldn't be addicted. Or they would have engaged
1: in the solution already because, like I said, n- none of us want to stay miserable. It's just that... So, I mean, how many times, I mean, I, I hear this all the time that, oh, I can do this on my own. I'll be able to, I'll be able to beat this on my own. And, you know, having a desire to change doesn't necessarily translate into having an ability to change. We have to acquire some new tools along the way to be able to make those changes stick. And sometimes we have some pretty significant blind spots to what those changes even need to be. So I think that sometimes working with a professional team is is critical to making sure that not only that we see what our needs are, but that those needs get met.
0: So you mentioned um, previously, in in your first answer you were talking about, as far as I could tell, people need to have a vision of where they could possibly get to. And possibly they have lost that. Mm -hmm. And it seems as though they also need to have a decent understanding of where they actually are and what perils they face if they don't change. How do you get the addicted person to realize those things?
1: Sometimes it's not even about realizing what they stand to lose or what they've already lost. Um, In terms of getting them, I mean, to to kind of break it down and and help you understand how I actually do this with them. What I will do ahead of time is I'll, I'll work with the family and I'll get them prepared and I'll have them organize their thoughts and their feelings in a way so that when we sit down with that person they are bringing the message. What I'm really doing it's my job as the interventionist isn't to come in and try to get into a power struggle with the person that I'm intervening with. The family holds all the cards in most most cases. They they have the ability to create change. For me it's just a matter of coming them coming in and giving them the tools To be able to help show them, okay, here's how we're going to walk through this. Here's how I'm going to structure this conversation so that you guys are able to communicate, number one, how much you love this person. Number two, how you've been affected by what's been going on with them. Not from a a place of, oh, you're lying to me, you're stealing from me, you're cheating me, you know, whatever the behaviors are, but the emotional impact that this has had on a family to be really be able to express that in in a very constructive and healthy way and then to offer them an opportunity to make some change and to set some boundaries and to be able to say, here's what I hope can happen in our in my relationship with you if we do get to where we are, we're asking you to go today. Yeah. If we don't get to that point today, here's how my relationship with you might have to change. And it's not intended to be punitive, but I can see that I'm enabling you. I can see that I'm being harmed by this, and I'm no longer willing to allow that to happen.
0: Um, well, you know, I guess the elephant in the room for me was, you know, it's kind of, you know, our obvious um, connection, and even though through different paths, we've we've kind of experienced similar things. Um, you you mentioned something that I wanted to speak to that resonated really strongly about your. Personal story. Are you comfortable sharing that?
1: Hey, nothing's off limits. I'm good.
0: Um, you know, you were talking about how people need to set boundaries with you, and you started, and I remember it was really emotionally powerful when you talked about how your family had to begin setting boundaries with you. Um, what happened?
1: So I had been living in Los Angeles. And during the, I, I started drinking when I was in high school. I took my first drink my senior year of high school and um, continued on and off for the next 12 years. But as I got out into Los Angeles and started working in the entertainment business out there, I I fell in with a crowd that regularly used cocaine. And that became my coping mechanism that became how I got through the day. It it was one of those things where just like with the, the, the feeling that I got when I drank alcohol, cocaine made it just that much better. And it was the relief from those feelings that I was trying to anesthetize that really drove me down that road. And of course the consequences started to add up. I lost jobs. I needed financial help from my family. And I got really good at manipulating my family into giving me that financial help. Uh, okay, I'm I'm doing something right now. This is not an emergency. You'll have to wait. Okay. Sorry, guys. I'm gonna have to. I'm uh, J- Justin. I'm we're having you work overtime on these edits. I apologize.
0: That's um, <laughs> right. Hey, you know what? It's it's okay to be uh, uh, a family there, dude. It's okay to be a dad, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but it, but it, you know, the, like I said, the consequences started adding up. The, the jobs got lost. Financial disaster was imminent. I was about ready to get evicted from my apartment. And I had two friends that I actually, had actually gone to high school with in, in Arizona. They were now out in California. And what I didn't realize at the time is that they were actually reaching out to my family and they were telling them, hey, stop sending them money. Here's what's really going on. And to the best of their knowledge, they shared with my family what I was doing. They didn't know everything, but they knew a lot more than my family did. And so as Is I called them this last time to ask them for money, they they said, "Well, we're not going to do that this time. Here's what's going to happen: We're going to drive out to L.A. and we'll pick you up and bring you back home. And whatever you can fit in our car, you can bring home with you. Whatever you can't, you got to be willing to walk away from." And I couldn't say yes fast enough.
0: That was your family that ended up saying that to you. Whatever you, we're going to come get you. It was. And and, okay, yeah, they
1: they were still kind of they were still kind of naive.
0: When you got a sense that you maybe had some spies in your life, how did that feel for you? Like your friends, for instance. You know, I didn't getting... find out until later. Oh, okay.
1: I didn't find out until after I got sober. they That's when they told me, hey, this is how we knew what was going on. And at that moment, I felt grateful because that probably saved my life. Yeah. Had I known at the time, I'd have been really angry It felt really betrayed because I was also drinking a ton of alcohol with these guys. They weren't necessarily dabbling in the, in the chemicals that I was dabbling in, but they were certainly my drinking buddies. They were no and angels. And so, well, I mean, compared to me, they were, but, but no, no, I mean, the the truth is they weren't, but you know, when I went back home, they, they made me promise to stop using. They made me promise to stop drinking. They made me promise to get a job. And you know, this was great. I'm, I get to go back home to my hometown, to the room that I grew up in. I get a fresh start. Mom's going to do my laundry and cook my meals. And dad's going to help clean up the financial mess that I've made. And I get a
0: fresh start. Did you have a sense of that time? And within about a week, I was I'm sorry, did you have a sense at that time that you needed a fresh start or were you still lying to yourself?
1: A little bit of both. I mean, I had made so many promises to myself up to that point that I wasn't going to drink that day. I wasn't going to use that day. I hadn't necessarily committed to staying sober for any length of time, but I remember very vividly saying, I'm going to stop at least for today i'm not going to drink today i'm not going to use today and could never even keep that promise to myself at that point there was just no power to be able to quit at that point no, no. even for a day and and so as i went back to arizona of course within about a week i found myself sitting on a new bar stool talking to a new drug dealer and off to the races i w- went again and not even thinking twice because Again, while I went out there with, and at the time I believed the commitments that I made, I, I had intended to follow through and, and obviously my parents believed them or they wouldn't have let me come home with them. But regardless of my intentions, the the execution was where I consistently fell short. And so it was briefly, you know, probably in maybe another two, three days once they realized like, okay, he's off the rails again. They woke me up, they handed me a couple of suitcases and they said, we love you. But we can't continue doing this. So either you're going to pack these bags and go to treatment today, or you're going to pack these bags and you're going to leave our home today. But today's the day. And of course, at that point I flipped, you know, how dare you think that I need help? You guys don't have any idea what's going on. I tried to push every single button that I could to try to get them, just gaslight them and to think that they were the ones that were wrong. And, when that didn't work, of course, I became very sweet and very reasonable. Oh, so please, you know, just give me till the weekend and I'll figure a way to get out of here. And my dad, I remember my dad looked at his watch and he said, You've got a half an hour. Wow. And for the first time in my life, I got put on the clock like that. And it was like, wait, What's going on? Yeah. This is not typical behavior for them. And I remember a couple of days later, I left and I, and I went to a buddy's house, crashed on his couch. A couple of days later, I went back. And I knocked on the door and I remember my mom opened the door and then she she saw there was me and she closed it. Oh, and she wow. spoke to me through the door. And she said, Are you ready to get some help? And I said, Mom, come on. You guys are way overreacting here. This is ridiculous. If you'll just let me come in, we can sit down like two rational adults. I mean, the last thing I was at that point was a rational adult. But here I was pretending to be a rational adult in that moment to try to manipulate my mother. Well, did you and still think you were way, a rational adult at the time? Oh, yeah. Of yeah. course. Yeah. I was completely delusional about what my capabilities were, even just to show up as a, as a, an adult in my life, my own life. Right. And so, you know, I, she said, I I won't be a prisoner in my own home ever again. I remember those words very I mean to this day. It's been it's been 21 years since she spoke those words to me. And and to this day I remember them. I remember her saying, "Matt, I will never be a prisoner in my own home ever again." And I wow. heard the deadbolt latch and she said, "Don't come back till you're ready to get some help." And How did that uh, feel? It took 2 more years. Wow. It felt I felt abandoned, you know, of course, in that moment, I didn't see treatment as a valid option. I I still rejected that idea. And so the idea that this family who, again, very innocently, very unknowingly had enabled me to a significant degree, they were taking that enabling away. They were taking that safety net away and they were making me responsible for my own life. But I was ill-equipped to do that. I had no idea how to do that. And so as I left that day, The first thing that I started doing was calling people to say, okay, can I come crash on your house? Basically saying, will you be the next person to enable me? Will you be the next person to take responsibility for me? Because I have no idea how to do that. And so for the next 18 months, I I found people that were willing to do that. And it was about 18 months into this that I nobody would open a door to me they knew what i was what i was up to they knew that i was either going to come in to their home and drink all their beer and try to get romantic with their wife and or girlfriend or you know whatever it was i was not the kind of person that they wanted to bring into their home and so I had this perfectly alcoholic idea where I thought, well, I've got enough money in my pocket to limp this little truck that I've got. I had like this 1981 Chevy S10 pickup that barely ran. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to go to Vegas. I'm going to start over in Vegas. And, and you know that's the land of opportunity for an alcoholic like me. And I broke down in Wickenburg. Uh, for those of you listening in Arizona and, or th- anybody else that might know where w- Wickenburg is, um, that's where I broke down. And I lived in my truck there for about six months before I finally decided that it was time to get some help.
0: So you lived in Wickenburg for six months.
1: Well, I lived there for about seven and a half years, but the six, first six months of that were, were in my truck.
0: What, I ended up
1: staying there and actually ended up working at, at a treatment center there. But but up until I got sober, I lived in my truck in Wickenburg. Yeah.
0: So Matt, how did you get sober? How did you get to where you could start to begin to help others? Um. Well, I... The, the, the
1: day that I went to my first AA meeting, um, you know, and, and I, there's this issue around anonymity in AA and I'm totally going to blow that out of the water tonight. And I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings or make it anybody mad by doing that. But I'm, I'm, I got sober in AA and I, I, I believe in, you know, this, this idea of recovering out loud and, and while I would never want to do anything to sully the name of AA, um, it's something that saved my life and I certainly want to give it credit. So I. I went to my first AA meeting April 6, 2003. And and that was my first day of 19 years of con- ooh, excuse me, 19 years of continuous sobriety now. And the, the day that I way. went, I remember waking up Thank you. Thank you. You know, I I didn't wake up thinking, oh, I'm gonna go to an AA meeting today. I woke up at like four o'clock in the morning and could not go back to sleep and was just tortured by just all the things that I knew I was doing wrong, and I remember seeing the the meeting house where they had AA meetings back then, and and thought, you know what, I, I got nothing else to do. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go see if this might be something for me. And I did not walk in there thinking I'm going to stay sober for the rest of my life. I wasn't even sure I was going to stay sober for the rest of that day. Right. But I walked in there and there was six there were six other men in there. So a total of seven guys. It was kind of hard to sit up against the wall and not get noticed. But it was a it was a morning gratitude meeting. And I got I had to sit sit around and listen to these guys talk about how grateful they were to be alcoholics and how grateful they were for the disease of alcoholism because it helped, you know, it showed them, you know, how to be better men. And I'm thinking, what grateful for this nonsense? This is miserable. And wow. I remember one of the old one of the older guys in there turned to me and he said, "You well, know, do you have anything you want to share and i I thought well i'm I'm just gonna just listen today if that's all right. I don't really have anything I want to share and he's like, "Well, hey if you're here to get sober, you might want to say something you know we we don't get sober by by staying quiet and I remember for the first time in my life I said the words, "'My name is Matt, and I'm an alcoholic. Wow, and something inside of me just broke loose. Like literally like broke loose, I started to sob uncontrollably, just as I uttered those words, I just could not stop crying, like snot coming out of my nose, head in my hands and and I just I was so ashamed that I just couldn't control my emotions, and I thought, oh, these guys are just they' when I look up and and make eye contact with these guys, I'm gonna feel humiliated, I'm gonna feel so embarrassed. And so when I finally got a, got a hold of myself a few minutes later, I looked up and I did not see any ridicule, I did not see any judgment or shame. I saw six other men looking at me like they knew exactly what I was going through. They knew exactly what I was feeling. And these guys just put their arms around me and they, they, they held me and, and told me they wanted me to come back the next day. Wow. And I'm thinking, did you just see what happened? Did you see the, just the mess that I made of myself there and you want me to come back? That's what I was thinking anyway. And, and so I went back the next day because that was the first time in a long time that I had been invited back somewhere. I'd been invited to go places before, but it had been a while since I'd been invited back. Back. And these guys <laughs> wanted me to come back. And so, and so I did. And about 30 days into my recovery, um, one of the ladies that was there, uh, an older woman from Canada who was in, uh, in Arizona at that point, she owned a treatment center there in Wickenburg. And she took a chance on me. She asked me if I wanted to come work for her. And of course, I didn't have anything better going on, didn't have any other prospects, still living in my truck. And so I, I did. And that was kind of the beginning of all of this. I As I worked there, I ended up working in the admissions department, became the admissions director, and got to know what it was to actually see a professional intervention done. And was so fascinated with the idea that what my parents had tried to do so many years ago there was actually people out there helping facilitate that. I, I'd never been exposed to that. This was before the days of the TV show and and all of that. And so, I, I would go with this interventionist that that worked for it or with us. He didn't work for us, but he was he was an outside contractor, and he he would do interventions. And I was like I said, I was fascinated. I wanted to learn more about it, and so I would go and ride shotgun with him. And that's kind of how I got introduced to this. And after doing it for a while, I decided, you know what? I I think I'd like to get some training. And so I went and got trained and certified and started my own company uh, in 2012. Had to think about that for a second. But so about 11 years now, I've been doing interventions uh, on my own, under my my own company name. Uh, But prior to that was really all in about 18 years doing interventions.
0: That's really a wonderful work. Does um, helping others... Obtain sobriety, help reinforce your own commitment to sobriety?
1: You know, it it does. I would say, and, I, and I've fallen into this trap, you know, here and there along the way that, oh, I work in this field, I do interventions. I don't really have to work as hard on my own recovery. And while I I haven't had a relapse, there have been some times along the way that I've had to, I think I've come close. Uh, closer than I'm comfortable with. Let's let's just put it that way. And so I can never use that as a substitute for my own recovery work and, and my own personal work on myself, but it sure does help put things in perspective on a day-to-day basis because I'm going in and I'm meeting someone on that day when my family said, here's these two suitcases. You can either pack them and go to treatment or you can pack them and move out. And while I'm the, the message that I'm bringing with me is a little different than that in most cases... It, it reminds me of just what I never want to go back to and why I continue to do this. Because on the other side of that, I get to share with them what my life looks like today. And that the misery and the pain and the anguish that they're feeling in that moment, it's temporary. It gets really good really fast. And that's the cool thing that I like sharing with people when I get to, to go in and sit face-to-face with them.
0: You uh, mentioned something that reminded me on your podcast, you guys have a show, The Dumb Stuff You'll Hear in Recovery and one of the items in there was yeah. relapse is part of recovery um, and you guys debunked that a little bit do you want to speak to that
1: sure you know i i it really frustrates me because i think there are some professionals out there that will tell people that relapse is a part of recovery and i think when you when you when you look at it through the mind of a drug addict or an alcoholic my immediate thought, if somebody's telling me that, is that I have permission to relapse down the line. I have permission to go out there and and use or drink again because that's just a part of the process. And what I try to tell people is that that categorically is not true. Now, do people relapse? For sure. Absolutely they do. And should they be made to feel ashamed of that? Never. Yeah. No. Just like with any other medical condition, if somebody is, has cancer and goes into remission and then re, you know has a relapse of the cancer, there's no need to make them feel ashamed of that. It happens. But at the same time, if I take care of myself, just like with someone who has a cancer diagnosis, if they take care of themselves and they follow the proper health regimens that their doctors give them, the likelihood of relapse diminishes in a significant way. The same thing is true with me and my disease of alcoholism, that if I maintain a state of spiritual integrity, you know, really take care of what's going on with me inside, my chances of relapse are, are much later, are much, much greater, great, more greatly diminished. If I can stop tripping over my words for a second, they're much more greatly diminished down the line. And so I, to hear professionals say that to people just really chaps me. I I really um I take issue with that and I'm pretty vocal about that when I hear professionals saying that to other people.
0: Well, I know as I listened, I thought the same thing. I thought, well, if I heard you're going to relapse, it's part of recovery and I thought I I know myself. I would have thought, sweet. I'm off the hook. No big deal, right? I'm going to relapse as part of it. But I love how you Took it because, one step hey, further. I,
1: I'm an alcoholic. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's right. But I love how you took it one step further, and you helped point out that if you relapse, doesn't mean you're an alien or something's really fundamentally wrong with you. It just means that you haven't healed entirely enough to not relapse or, or to not get those triggers that send That's you exactly right. to those things. How? So you mentioned the spiritual solution, so I want to speak to that if we can. Um, uh, and the height yeah. of my... Um, Dysfunction for for lack of too much completion. <laughs> that um, you know how I in, in that height in the in the worst time for me, I pushed everything good away and spirituality, church, and I had been through some seri- pretty serious church discipline. That um, as and, and really that was what you said that resonated so strongly with me was you said walking out of your state president's office. Um, something broke inside you. And that definitely yeah. that definitely happened to me. And when it broke, um, that's not all that broke. It, it took the foundation with it. And, and, and the entire foundation of my faith and the basis for my faith was lost in that moment. And I had to work and strive. And I'm still working and striving to develop a relationship with God that resonates with me. But I had to rebuild it from square one. Do I really believe in God? Do I really care? Do I really want to go down this road? You know, do I really believe in Jesus Christ? I had to reestablish everything. And you and I both grew up, um, you know, in, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we were, we were, um, you know, pretty staunch Mormons. And I mean, to even think that way yeah. seems uh, her- heretical to me. Um, nevertheless, it's what happened. So how do you bridge, like, how do you, do you find other people in addiction? It's that, that it's hard for them to be spiritual and they, that they're that broken. And how do you, and if you find them, I, what I do, do it, you do about and, it?
1: And it's a process. I mean, for me to sit here and say, this is how everyone has to do it. Uh, that's, I think that's pretty arrogant, but it's, it's one of those things where, you know, speaking personally about myself first, you know, when I did get excommunicated from the church, I felt like I had been thrown away by God. And there was just this feeling of emptiness. As I walked out of that building, I remember thinking just how angry and broken I felt because here I was, you know, in my mind playing, making myself the victim of the story that I'm writing here. I'm, I'm, I've been thrown away by my family. Now I've been thrown away by, by God and the things that have, or the people, the beings in my life that have been the most important now, no longer want to have anything to do with me. And it, it, I got really angry and things got really, really dark. And at one point I called myself an atheist simply because it was easier to, to pretend that God didn't exist than to actually wrestle with these feelings that I had of my own inadequacy, of, of my perception of, of who I thought God was. And as I got into the 12 step program, I, one of the things that kept me out of the 12 steps in the very beginning, once I kind of at least superficially got acquainted with them, was this whole, whole idea of a higher power. And I think that, you know, you ask about the people that I work with. I think that's one of the things that people reject just on the surface about the 12 steps is that I don't want to have to admit that I believe in some sort of power greater than myself. And it's, it's, it's a struggle for a lot of people spiritually because while I don't believe that addiction has moral implications, I don't think it's a moral issue. I do know that we certainly make morally compromising choices when we're caught in the depths of an addiction. And and I think those two things are completely separate from one another, but nevertheless, our self-esteem just takes a huge hit. And this the the idea that we could be loved unconditionally, the idea that that you know this perfect being still has love for me, was just something I couldn't tolerate because even in my own mind, I was unlovable, and that, that I had played into. I played into my
0: story, um, but what you said resonates very well. Like, how could anybody love me after what I've done? Mm -hmm. And when I felt the foundation of my faith crumble, there was only a couple things left that made me feel good. And none of those were good for me. And, And so I... It was ridiculously difficult um, to navigate for me. And I know everybody's different.
1: Isn't it, isn't it crazy though? Isn't it crazy how we will trade what's healthy and right for what feels good in the moment, what gives us that relief and, and we trade freedom and happiness for relief in that moment because freedom and happiness are hard. Relief is easy when we know the substances to put in our bodies that'll, that'll make that go away or the behaviors that'll make that go away. I'm looking for that instant gratification in that moment, and and it just makes things worse.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, you, I think you said that perfect. I don't even want to speak to that because that was very well said. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you was, uh, in, and, and it, this cloud occurred a few minutes ago, but in speaking to using substances, does is that like leaving seeds for other addicts listening to possibly? Um, send the domino down the road and, and all the dominoes fall after that and send them into seeking or, um, desiring substances. Me talking about it right now. You mean, well, yeah, just us talking about it. Having if it somebody, out there. if
1: somebody, if somebody, if somebody's listening to this and they're struggling with their own substance abuse issues, is this conversation you think gonna, is it going to be triggering for them? Is that what I hear you asking? Yes. Okay. I hope not. I really, I really hope not what I hope they can hear in this conversation between you and me is that they have two people here that understand what it is they're going through. And that's the only reason I really ever share my story with people is because I want them to know that I've been there. I want them to know that I feel what they feel. The details of my story and your story and their story may be very different, but underneath it all, if I ask you, do you know what it's like to feel lonely or scared or sad or insecure or resentful or rageful or any of these big feelings? Because that's where addiction lives. My inability to control how I feel. I don't know what to do with these feelings. And I didn't know it until I took a drink. When I was 18 years old and took my first drink and I felt the effect of alcohol, it was just like, oh, wow. You mean... I don't have to feel this way. I I didn't even realize that I had those feelings until they were gone. And so I think that if somebody's listening to this, I hope this is, I mean, this is what I hope more than anything is that they just know that they don't have to feel that way anymore. It has nothing to do with the substances that they're using or the behaviors that they're engaging in. What, if you're listening to this right now and you're struggling, it's about the feelings. Once you learn how to healthily and, and, Helping, to be able to to manage that in- internal condition with an internal solution rather than the external solution of substances or behaviors, that's where things start to click. And it takes work. It's not easy, but it but it's worth it.
0: Um, how do you – one thing you mentioned too is keeping your promises to yourself, right? Um, and as, as an addict, we are really good at lying to ourselves and telling ourselves what we want to hear. Yeah. And I, one of my mentors, um, his wife actually created a post on Instagram and she talked about people, uh, the relationship with themselves. And if you had a friend who never showed up when they were supposed to, if you had a friend that never followed through with what they asked, you asked them to do, if you had a friend that would make promises and never delivered on those promises, if you had a friend that would take from you, would devalue you, how would you feel about that friend? And the answer is, you wouldn't like them very much. And then she flipped the script and said, well, how often do we do that to ourselves? We make promises to ourselves all the time. and We don't follow through with them. And as an addict, you realize, like, you feel I felt the weight of that. And it devalued my own self-esteem even more. And it made it that much less likely that I had the strength to overcome. So how do you begin to start keeping those promises again? I, I know what worked for me. But what what are what have you found and, and what do you recommend?
1: Well, the first thing I had to come to believe is that the intentions don't matter. You know, it's the outcomes that really matter. You know, life isn't measured by intentions. It's measured by outcomes. Relationships aren't measured by intentions. They're measured by outcomes. And so when I stopped giving myself credit for all these intentions that I had and started really looking at the hard truth of what my outcomes really were, that I had, to, I had to swallow some bitter medicine and really find people who could teach me how to do that, who could hold me accountable because I could not do that on my own. I had to surround myself with men who knew how to hold me accountable and love me at the same time. And I learned that that's real love. Cosigning the nonsense that I was engaged in at the time with these friends that I used to run around and make trouble with, that's not real love. It's the men that held me accountable and held my feet to the fire to be a better man that really learned that showed me how to learn how to love myself and how to love other people by passing that accountability on to them, and and so I, I take no credit for that on my own because I had some really good strong men that showed me how to do it.
0: Yeah, you know that I love that you said that. That's powerful. I mean, even me pushing me to start my podcast, I had a, um, a pretty strong encouragement about two years ago. And I knew, left to myself, I would never do it. I would rationalize myself out of it. And so I um, reached, reached out to Justin and was like, Justin, you kind of got to make me do this. I, I want to do this. I think we have some value here. I'm never going to get this done without you helping me. I'm just not. I'm, I'm realistic in the fact that my anxiety is going to keep me from ever launching this. Because for one, I really don't want anybody to know anything about me. But two, I feel like if by, that's a selfish outlook. By sharing my story, I feel like I can help somebody and I can be relatable to somebody and we can make a difference to somebody. So I need to do it. But I knew I would never do it on my own. So I had to surround myself with somebody that would push me to get there. And I love that you spoke to that fact that really your community and your network, it's going to determine the outcomes that you have in your life. And it's so important to surround yourself with people that will help you get to where you want to go rather than people that will keep you stuck, right? Um,
1: Well, and and I heard somebody say one time that you are the sum of the behaviors of the five people you spend the most time with and and i I believe that that's true and And listen while you're talking about this, I want you to know. I know I've mentioned that I had listened to some of the episodes of your podcast. I think I've listened to all of them except i got I'm halfway through the one that you just released with the dentist. I haven't heard all of that one yet, and I'm sorry. um but i I want to just applaud how transparent you have been and and what that's meant to me. And, you know here I am, you know, this is what I do for a living, but you know, knowing you, knowing your family. And and hearing just how transparent you and your wife are being with your lives and and the problem excuse me, the problems that you've had and now the solutions that you guys have implemented. And and hearing in the last episode about the the exercise program, I, I can't remember for the life of me what that's called. 75 Hard. That's right. Yeah. And and that, you know, hearing that, and while that wasn't necessarily my road to recovery, just to know that that you guys did that together at our time where you guys were so broken I, I just I want to applaud you for that
0: thank you um, I I had tried to do 75 hard three other times before that and Andy Fryzella is uh, the guy that came up with the program I listen to his podcast all the time uh, he's I'm in a mentors, business mentorship group with him the Arite Syndicate um, and he has had a profound impact on me personally, and it was his wife Emily that made the post about keeping the promises to yourself that was so profound, one of the most profound posts I've ever read, but I knew I needed to change, and and his quote on 75 Heart is, this is the program, it's a mental toughness program, I know it's, you're using your physical body to reprogram your mind, and largely your subconscious programming, right, and you're teaching yourself to keep promises to yourself and as you do that your self-worth is going to increase and your mental toughness is going to increase and your grit and your ability to do hard things because doing those things consistently is hard and it's and as you keep those promises as you finish this program it is the fastest way to fix what's wrong with you and finally I listened to that episode that he had um re-released recently last year and I resonated with me so strongly I just realized that is exactly what I need. I need these outcomes now. I can no longer want them. I can no longer just muddle my way through life. I have seven kids. I have a career. I need to get control of this before I lose absolutely everything. And I need those outcomes now. You know and I didn't have time to to do the other solutions I've been taught in my life. And I'm not saying there's failures there, but Sometimes we're taught, just have more faith. Just pray more. Maybe you need to fast about it. Well, I did all that stuff. And in fact, I was probably more checking the boxes, spiritually righteous when I fell than I was, you know, at any other time in my life. And so then again, you know, that adds doubt to the system. And I had to recapture my faith. And, And I do want to speak to that in just a second with you but i had to recapture my faith and i um i had to recapture my mojo i lost me i was gone man i was was the madman the lizard brain lonnie was running the show and i was starting alienating my family my kids felt it my work environment felt it i wasn't even i i was i was not even happy with myself any longer and i was totally miserable and i just reached the tipping point um and i did mention on phone. I've been through two interventions and um, one, I mean, one was so informal. I heard that
1: on the podcast. Yeah.
0: uh, It was my cousin meeting me at Oregano's. My wife set the whole thing up. And once I realized what was going on, I was just so mad that no good could get done. And I just, uh, you know, and then another time was, was my wife's sweet family. Um, you know, they had, they had, um, it was the day after Thanksgiving. They were like, Hey, let's get together. And, uh, let's have, let's, let's play games. Let's, let's barbecue and play games. And we bring your fire <laughs> table out. And I was like, sure, we'll sit around your garage and my fire table while we play games. But yeah, we'll do it. Um, and then after dinner, everybody sits around these chairs and my father-in-law, he starts uh, essentially telling me, you know, his expressions of faith and love towards me and his perspectives. And all of a sudden I did, my heart just sank and I just realized exactly what's going on. I was just like, oh man. What do I do? And I just wanted to crawl through the chair, through the cement and out the building as fast as possible. In fact, I started texting my wife blindly. I'm like, get me out of here. Uh, I got to go.
1: Oh, she, was, she wasn't she was there, huh? She
0: was there. She was not quite sitting right next to me. Oh, okay. So but I was like, you check just, your phone. You just me didn't want to here. say it out loud. Yeah, I didn't want to be the guy that was like, <laughs> screw you guys. I'm out of here. <laughs> I didn't want, but that's what I wanted to do in here. But I knew that was going to be devastating yeah. for my family, so I kept that inside. But I wanted my wife to say, hey, get me out of here. I and I, but I didn't appreciate it. And it wasn't their fault. They're, they love me. I know they do. They have, they've been wonderful and gracious. Absolutely. And they were scared, and they were terrified. And they saw this person acting in a way that they've been told is evil and sinful. And because of that, we're not going to be able to have our forever family. And they were terrified, and they didn't know what else to do. But I did not receive that well. Now, I, most of those families may have been on me. I'm willing to accept that. And but this is what you do, Matt. So when you have a family well, member, we're, we get very good at. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're fine. Um, well, we get we get really good at
1: we get really good at making ourselves the victim. We forget how much courage that it, that it took for a family like yours to sit down in the garage or at the fire table there and say, "Here's how we're feeling." And the, the, the backbone and the courage that that takes, we don't see that in the moment because all we can think about is how we feel. Right. I don't like this. This doesn't feel good. I need to get out of here. Right. And, and it's that victim mentality that a lot of us carry with us because it's easy to put responsibility for everything else on somebody uh, – for, for everything on somebody else than it is to, to wear that responsibility ourselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I wasn't – I don't know that I was strong enough to be honest with myself because I probably couldn't handle the reality like well, I probably I definitely couldn't handle the reality of the situation and that's why I was trying to escape it so so greatly so if you have a family member or a friend or a loved one that you are terrified for and you love very much what's the right way to do it
1: I don't think everyone has to find a professional interventionist to to do this. I think that there are cases where it's absolutely advisable and absolutely necessary, especially in cases where the family has lost credibility with the individual that they want to to work with. There's either they've they've tried to set boundaries in the past and it hasn't worked, or they've tried to get them into treatment in the past and and fallen short. Um, sometimes you have to get a professional involved. If you don't, I think that sometimes just really remembering i think this idea of tough love gets gets permeated throughout the the idea you know it's kind of synonymous with with an intervention we remember very easily the tough part you know because oftentimes there's hurt feelings there's fear there's resentment there's anger and it's really easy to focus on the tough you have to do this or else and it doesn't sound like that's what excuse me i keep hitting my microphone here it doesn't sound like that's what happened with you but with a lot of families, that's the case. They they feel that. And we forget that the love part needs to be just as present, that we have to engage with love. Shame, fear, guilt, they are very poor long-term motivators. Right. Hope. Hope is what motivates people. If we can give people hope that will sustain us for so long because that's something we want to hold on to nobody wants to hang on to shame we want to get rid of that as fast as we can we want to that's what we've been trying to not feel for years right most of us yeah but you you give me some hope man i'm going to hang on to that because that's that's priceless that's worth gold right there to me if i can have some hope cuz that's something i don't feel very often if i'm in that position again
0: but so question matt um, we have some great content. We have about 49 minutes that's been recorded. Um, we could make an episode out of what we have so far. Do you want to continue with what we got and keep going? Or All right. Do you want to pick this up again another day and we do hey, episode it, two. What do you want to do?
1: It is. It, I will do whatever you want, man. This is your show. I'm. I'm. I'm good with whatever.
0: What I kind of think might be prudent would be oh let's God. let's see how this captures and how this all translates before we do anything else or if talk about anything else, right? And um, we can see if we're really shooting okay. what we think we're shooting, <laughs> right? And uh, put it all together and see how it looks. Yeah. And then come back together on this because I, I you know, what I've kind of found uh, empirically by doing this is. It's uh, it's kind of a self feeding system. You we say things that resonate with people, and then they bring that we've we have questions. We have people requesting certain podcast shows. We have people that are being like, hey, talk about this. And I know this is going to be a powerful message to a lot of people. And and I, I know many people. Um, you know, like I mentioned in my show, I had a, one of my good friends from uh, ASU that went to dental school with his last name was was started with a B and mine started with a C and we sat next to each other for four years straight. We were clinical partners. We did everything for, and then we came to Arizona and we um, practiced together near each other. We didn't practice together, but um, he had a practice um, transition broker that I used and we would help each other with things. And we were colleagues. And and then when did he dies of a drug overdose or, Perhaps he committed suicide. He's not around to ask. I don't know. It was devastating.
1: Right? But like you said, th- what, what his pastor said, I mean, that, it really doesn't matter what, what, the, what the intent was. The fact of the matter is he was gone.
0: Yeah. Right. But I mean, I think this is a message that I, need, I would like it to be relevant to so many people that I know and love. And so I'm, I'm sure we will get opportunities to discuss other things and questions and things, but I think it'd be good. Let's, let's I cut it here. I will do this as often.
1: And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do this as many times as you want.